0: In 1620, a group of people called the Pilgrims landed somewhat by accident, but probably by Providence, at what would be Plymouth, Massachusetts. The story of those early years that uh, we use this time of the year when we talk about Thanksgiving were years of hardship and deprivation and struggle, and yet, through it all, God was good to them. When we come to Thanksgiving time, it's good for us to look back at the early struggles of our country. And really, why the pilgrims were the pilgrims, why they came to this country, what were they looking for, and what did they find. There is much for us to learn as we go to Plymouth, Massachusetts. And so I want to begin this evening by reading from Psalm chapter 119, verse 89 and 90. Uh, in the year 2009, Betty and I were in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and early one morning in August it was a hot morning, and I took my Bible and went up to the top of what's called Burial Hill, and it's called Burial Hill because there's a whole bunch of pilgrims buried up there. They uh, they, they buried them at a spot where there had been an old meeting house up there at one time where they had gathered together to worship, and they buried Eventually, there was a cemetery there in that area, and that's where many of the pilgrims were buried. And on that particular morning, uh, as I had been through the year 2009, reading through the Word of God, the text that I had for that morning came. These verses came out of that text. I want you to listen to what God's Word says. Psalm 119, 89 and 90, "'Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, thy faithfulness is unto all generations, thou hast established the earth, and it abideth." So it's easy for us to see that the Word of God says, quite simply, that God's faithfulness, it never ends, it never gets weak, it's never tired, it's always there. Every day, every season, every year, I can say, what a good God, what a good God I have. And what a good God He's been to me, personally. He's been good to me. Well, now, uh, when I talk about five kernels of corn, uh, let me just show you how this all kind of ties together in this sermon tonight. In 1622, the pilgrims had had a hard year in 1621. In 1621, they had observed that first Thanksgiving at the end of the summer, but the winter had been a very hard winter, and they had reached a point where near spring, they had at one point fallen to the, po- the place where that they put five kernels of corn to begin a meal on their plate. That's what they were down to, and yet none of them starved to death. Historically, what I'm telling you is true. None of them starved to death. Not like what happened down the coast at Jamestown. None of them starved to death that winter. They called it the starving time. And that fall in 1622, when they gathered for what was a, their second Thanksgiving, they started their meal that night or that day by putting five kernels of corn in front of each one of them. It was a reminder. That God had been good to them through all of it, through all of the struggles, everything they had known. Just like us, it would be almost as if a year from now we come to Thanksgiving and we begin by asking everybody to put a face mask on, <laughs> because we've gone through it. God has brought us through it; He's led us through it. Then that kind of a story it is in our lives now that God in the midst of all of our difficulties, the story of our our nation when things have gone bad and it's been hard for us and we've not had hardness in this country in many, 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 many years, decades, maybe we could even say centuries, not like what other countries have experienced it. God has been good to us. He has blessed us. What would it be like to sit down and acknowledge that we have a God that has been that good to us? Tonight, I want to talk a little bit about history. I want to let each kernel of corn represent something. Uh, The first one would represent the values that the pilgrims had. You you can get your corn out, please don't lose it, Uh, because somebody had to pick it up. So I I started to say, we should have put candy corn in here, and we wouldn't have to worry about losing it. Everybody would hang on to their candy corn. But So the first kernel of corn is representing the values of the pilgrims. And the second kernel of corn is going to represent the vision of the pilgrims, because they had a vision. And then the third kernel of corn is going to represent the voyage of the pilgrims on the Mayflower. So at that point, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of looking ahead now to uh, where we were last week. Then there's uh, the fourth kernel of corn uh, that when I get to that point, I'll remember what it is, but right now I don't. But it starts with a V. And then the final kernel of, cor- uh, kernel of corn is going to stand for the victory that they had. Uh, Because God, God led them through, and He led them through with great victory. So let's jump into this and get started tonight. Peter Marshall, who wrote the book, The Light and the Glory, said, It's almost inconceivable how life could be supported on five kernels of corn. But as always, they had a choice, either to give in to the bitterness and despair, or go deeper into Christ. They chose Christ. And in contrast to what happened to Jamestown, not one of them died of starvation. So in order to tie everything together, we need to just talk a little bit about, about who these people were. Well, the pilgrims' values, who were they? We mentioned last week, and if you would like to go online and watch this message again, Betty will probably want to do that, but uh, if you want to go online and watch this message again from last week, the pilgrims uh, were people of great values. In, in the late 1500s, in London, England, or in, in England, uh, the whole land of Great Britain, there was a lot of conflict in that country. And of course, there have been a lot of wars that have been fought in England, but you had basically everything had divided down into the Catholic Church and then Protestants, but the Church of England had emerged with the King of England or the Queen of England being the head of the Church. So, how would you like it if every time you had a new King or a new Queen or every time you elected a new President, that President would become the head of the Church? You could see where there might be a problem that doesn't work real well. And that's one of the reasons it is such a good thing for us to be able to say we have separation of church and state in this country. The President, the Congress, the Supreme Court does not dictate to the church what the church practices and how they practice their faith. We are absolutely, it is a constitutional protection upon us, one that is worth standing up for and one that is worth fighting for. They didn't have that. The Church of England was in charge And in the Church of England, there were primarily two groups of dissenters. One of them were called uh, the Puritans, who believed that what they needed to do was to stay in the Church of England and cleanse it from the inside. Now, anytime a denomination has troubles, there are always those that are going to say that. Let's just stay in it, and we're going to work from inside to change what we need to change. That could have to do with a lot of groups in our country. But then there, in the Church of England there was a separate group called the separatists, and some have estimated there were only about a thousand of them at the maximum, but they read a passage of Scripture that says, come out from among them and be ye separate. And they said, "We we can't tolerate the dictates of King James, or prior to King James, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, We can't tolerate the dictates that they lay upon us. We've got to come out. So, along about 1606, they did. They came out from the Church of England and they began to meet in small groups and worshiping God in their homes. And their their principles were simply this Uh, they preached and they sang and they prayed. And that's pretty much what they did. They didn't have any liturgy, no one to tell them how this is the form and the function of your worship service. They were very independent. They believed that every person ought to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everybody ought to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard for us to understand how that upsets the apple cart, because that's what we believe. We believe in preaching, free preaching primitive preaching, they called it free praying. Nobody writes out your prayer for you. When you stand to pray, you're praying according to what God lays by, your whole, by the Holy Spirit upon your heart. Uh, nobody tells you what should be taught or exercised in, in terms of doctrine. And you can sing, sing freely. Uh, you're, you're able to do that. So you start out with that. So that's kind of their value system. And then they began to suffer. Their vision was, uh, at about that point, we've got to get out of England, and with all the persecution and everything, they went to Leiden, Holland, where they stayed about 12 or 14 years. And then it became obvious that if they were going to stay there for any length of time, they were probably going to wind up at war with their own country. And at their heart, they were loyal to England, and they wanted to get out of there. They also knew that the longer they stayed there, the more their children were being corrupted. That was a great concern. Because they thought, if our children are corrupted, I mean, that's our hope, that's our future. And the longer they were around the elements that they were in, there in Leiden, Holland, uh, they were pulled away from the convictions that they had. And so their vision was, they wanted to go somewhere where they could carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. They wanted to take the gospel to the new world. Now, I don't know what you've heard or what you may have read, but I'm telling you, this is absolutely true. Their vision was... They wanted to come to a place where they could worship God according to the dictates of their heart. They didn't come seeking gold, they came to worship God. Their, the basis of their founding was not like what it was down the coast at Jamestown. And by the way, they thought they were going to land in Virginia, but they didn't. They thought they were in Virginia, but they were in New England, they were there at uh, in that Uh, Massachusetts Bay area. They landed there, Plymouth, stepped out on Plymouth Rock, which is not a great big rock, but they stepped out on Plymouth Rock, and boy, the world that they stepped into was a different world. So their values, they were free worshipers, and they wanted a place to worship God. Their vision, uh, they wanted wanted to go carry the gospel to the new world. Their pastor in Leyden Holland was a man named John Robinson, and he said, this. He said, Now as the people of God in old time were called out of Babylon, the place of their bodily bondage, and were to come to Jerusalem, and there to build the Lord's temple or tabernacle, so are the people of God now to go out of Babylon spiritual to spiritual Jerusalem. And to build themselves as living stones into a spiritual house or temple for the Lord to dwell in it. And so, unlike the settlement at Jamestown, they would would have a spiritual venture. They went to carry the gospel. Well, what about their voyage? And uh, the third kernel of corn represents their voyage. So they purchased two ships. The Speedwell was the smaller of them. The Mayflower was the larger of them. And uh, the Mayflower had been a wine merchant ship and was wine-soaked, which may have contributed to the relative good health of the pilgrims on the voyage. And as they prepared to leave, they prayed and fasted for a day with many tears at, at those that they would be leaving behind. And, you know, like a lot of missionaries in those days when they went out, they didn't go out expecting to come back. So they were saying goodbye to people that they loved and knowing that they would never see them again. Dawn On July the 22nd, 1620, was greeted with a fair wind, and now it really was time to say goodbye. On the dock, John Robinson, their pastor, slowly knelt, and all the others followed his lead. And as he solemnly invoked God's blessing on their undertaking, tears came to all of their eyes, and even the young men wept unabashedly. Quickly they boarded the ship, and they cast off. There were 102 separatists, pilgrims, on those two ships. And when the speedwell began to leak, they put them all on one ship. And when they put them on that ship, they found a crew on that ship that didn't have the values, the virtues that they did, and they actually began to make fun of the pilgrims for their faith and saying, we'll bury you at sea, you'll never make it. The only death on that journey across the, the ocean was one of the crew members who had all openly bragged about burying the pilgrims at sea. night, November the 9th, 1620, they heard land ho. It would be several weeks before they actually landed at Plymouth, but before they landed, they did something very important. We talked about it last week. They signed the Mayflower Compact, which would be an example to us of what a document would be that would let the civil body politic make its laws, have its own governance, and above everything else, put God in the center of everything that they were about to do. Now, the fourth kernel of corn stands for the Pilgrim's Valor, the Pilgrim's Valor. So let's talk about what happened when they landed here. They worked, and they worshipped, and they buried their dead. So even though 102 of them had made it across the ocean, the winter of 1620 was hard, the spring of 1621 was hard. And according to Peter Marshall, when the the worst was finally over, they had lost 47 people. Nearly half of their original number died that first winter. You know what they did? They buried them after dark in shallow graves because they did not want the Indians of the neighborhood to know how small their group had become. Hello, this is Monty Schenkel, and we sure appreciate you listening to this podcast. This is a new effort on our part from Take Heart Ministry. A little over a year ago, we began Take Heart Ministry with the intention of telling people by means of radio and also the internet, and now by podcasts, that they can take heart because Jesus cares for them. If you'd like to know more about us, if you'd like to check our ministry out, you can go to takeheart.org. If you would like to personally contact me, you can write to Moni Schenkel or you can write to mschenkel at takeheart.org. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. Thirteen of the eighteen wives that were on the trip died. Only three families remained unbroken. Of all the first comers, the children fared the best. Of the seven daughters that were on board, none of them died. Of the thirteen sons, only three died. And the colony, which was young to begin with, was even younger now, but compared with the Jamestown, uh, with Jamestown, 80 to 90 percent mortality rate, they came through remarkably well at just a little over 50 percent. And through all of it, their hearts remained soft toward God, whether they knew that they were being tested, as Bradford later suspected, the high point of their week remained every Sunday when they came together to worship. Inside on rough-hewn log benches, the men would sit on the left, the women on the right. William Brewster would preach, and he had a gift for teaching both powerfully and profitably to the great contentment of his hearers and their comfortable edification. Yea, many were brought to God by his ministry and elsewhere Bradford comments on the fact that God used Brewster's preaching as an instrument to bring sweet repentance to their hearts for the sins that they may have forgotten about. Well, I'd like to be able to preach like that, so stuff you've already forgotten I could bring up again and you'd know about it. And God heard their prayers. You know who he sent to the rescue? He sent Indians to the rescue. Amen. Let's give the Indians a hand. They showed up for the rescue, and God was using them. Uh, The first one that appeared was an Indian, an Algonquin Indian named Samoset. And this is very interesting. From the history books, he walked up to the common house one day and shouted in English, welcome. That's the first thing he said. His second words were, from history, and I quote, have you any beer? He knew a lot about the English, didn't he? He visited with them for a while, and then he promised to return. He came back a week later with another Indian who also spoke English and who was, of all things, a Patuxet. The second Indian was named Squanto. You remember that from studying history. And he was to be, according to Bradford, a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectations. The extraordinary chain of coincidences in this man's life is in its own way no less extraordinary than the saga of Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt. Indeed, in the ensuing months, there was not a doubt in any of their hearts that Squanto, whose, English, whose Indian name was Tisquantum, was sent from God." And you know about that time they, they signed a peace, a peace treaty in March of 1621 that would last for 50 years. There would be no fighting among them. And isn't that just like God to give them the protection that they needed? You see, Squanto had uh, at one time been enslaved and, and taken across the ocean himself. It was there that he learned English, and then he made his way back, and when he got back, he, all of his people had died. Now he had found a reason for living. These English were like little babies, so ignorant were they of the ways of the wild. Well, he could certainly do something about that. The next day, after he'd greeted them, he went out and came back with with eels he could hold in his hands, which the pilgrims found to be fat and sweet and excellent eating. I'll have to trust him on that. How had he caught them, they asked? He took several young men and with him, with, with him and taught them how to squash the eels out of the mud with their bare feet and then catch them with their hands. But the next thing he showed them was by far the most important, for it would save every one of their lives. April was corn planting month in New England. Squanto showed the pilgrims how to plant corn, the Indian way hoeing six-foot squares in toward the center putting down four or five kernels of corn, and then fertilizing the corn with fish. At that, the pilgrims just shook their head. In four months, they had caught one fish, exactly one cod. No matter, said Squanto cheerfully, in four days, the creeks would be overflowing with fish." The pilgrims cast a baleful eye on, his, on their amazing friend who seemed to have adopted them, but Squanto ignored them and instructed the young men on how to make baskets. They would need to catch the fish. Obediently, the men did as, they, as he told them. And four days later, the creeks for miles around were clogged with alewives, making their spring run, and the pilgrims didn't catch them. They harvested them. So now the corn was planted. Pointing spoke like to the center of each mound were three fish, their heads almost touching. Now, said Squanto, they would have to guard against wolves. Seeing the familiar bewildered look on, the, on his charges' faces, he added that the wolves would attempt to steal the fish, and the pilgrims would have to guard them for two weeks until the fish decomposed, and so they did. And that summer, 20 acres of corn flourished. The first Thanksgiving, 1621, would see 90 Indians join the handful of pilgrims to celebrate. The Indians brought five deer and 12 wild turkeys. The pilgrims gave of their produce and dried fruit. And surely one moment stood out in the pilgrims' memory William Brewster's prayer as they began the festival. They had so much for which to thank God for. He'd provided all their needs, even when their faith had not been up to believing that he would do so, for the lives of the departed, for taking them home to be with him, for their friendship with the Indians, so extraordinary when settlers in the south of them had experienced the opposite, for all of his remarkable providence in bringing them to this place and sustaining them. And so God had blessed them and took care of them. You know, isn't it awesome? When we look back over 400 years of history to see how it all got started, and how God met their needs and God provided for them. When we sing, great is thy faithfulness, when we talk about how he's with us season after season after season, through all that we've gone through in this country and all we're in the midst of right now, folks, I'm telling you, he's not going to let go of us. He may send trouble and trials into us to draw us closer to him, but I'm telling you, God's word is true. Forever his word is settled in heaven. The spring of 1622 would find the pilgrims, With more mouths to feed, this was the starving time, and rations slipped to five kernels of corn when they would sit down to eat. Squanto died in 1622. Massasoit, a nearby chief that had befriended them, nearly died, and Pilgrims cared for him with medicines, and he was almost instantaneously healed. It was a miracle. In March of 1623, news came that Massasoit was sick. Edward Winslow, John Hamden, and Habamock, the Indian who was now the pilgrim's interpreter after Squanto died, were sent by Governor Bradford to visit with him and bring him natural herbs and medicines that Samuel Fuller had recommended. Upon arriving to see Massasoit who was at the point of death, Edward Winslow did what he could and the recovery was so swift that Winslow remarked, We with admiration a- admiration, bless God for giving His blessings to such raw and ignorant means, making no doubt of His recovery Himself, and all of them acknowledging us as the instruments of His preservation. Never did I see a man so low brought recovery in that measure in such a short a time, And ministering to him, after ministering to him for a few days, Massasoit remarked, "'Now I see that the English are my friends and love me, and while I live I will never forget their kindness they have showed me.'" And when they gathered together in 1622 at harvest time, the first thing that went on their plate were five kernels of corn. Now, Peter Marshall wrote these words, he said these pilgrims were a mere handful of light bearers on the edge of a vast and dark continent, but the light of Jesus Christ was penetrating further into the heart of America. William Bradford would write with remarkable discernment, as one small candle may light a thousand, so the light kindled here has shone unto many Yea, in some sort, our whole nation, we have noted these things so that we might see their worth and not negligently lose what your fathers have obtained with so much hardship. On top of Burial Hill, that summer of 2009, I pondered these words, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou established the earth, and it abideth." From 400 years ago, there is this word from William Bradford, do not negligently lose what your fathers have obtained with so much hardship. Uh, It's not been an easy path, and it's not been an easy road for our country and We've known sin that need to be confessed, and we've known wars that had to be fought, and we've we've known difficulties, and now we're in the midst of a difficulty. But oh, that God would use this present crisis, that we would not negligently forget the price that was paid by our forefathers, that we would be at the place where we have the freedoms that we have. God has been good to us. God has blessed us. We'll not sit down this year with just five kernels of corn in our plates, but that would be a good way to start, to remember the pilgrims and their virtue and their love for God and their vision to come and plant a place here that the gospel could be extended across this American continent, and their voyage that they sailed on that little ship, the Mayflower, And their valor with which they fought once they got here to get a toehold in this country uh, through all of the hardships, through the winter, through the starving, through everything else, we don't forget and the victory that they had because God took care of them. He prepared a way for them. And God will take care of us. But like they had to cast themselves upon the Lord we have to cast ourselves upon the Lord and trust Him. I don't know if you do trust Him. I feel in my heart that I can testify tonight that I do trust Him. I don't understand everything that's going on. I can't explain all the turmoil in our nation. I think I have an understanding of what's brought us to this point. And the reason that we've come to this point is that we have done… exactly opposite of what William Bradford said to do. We have negligently forgot what, forgotten what these men and women went through to give us freedom. God provided for them. God will provide for us. Great is the faithfulness of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. We appreciate you tuning in. We pray that this has been a blessing to you. And I pray that today you in your own heart can take heart because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. And Jesus came to be the Savior of all who would call upon him. And if today you've never trusted in him, I encourage you to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me and save me. And God's word says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our purpose in all of this is to encourage you to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to take heart in Jesus. He cares for you.